0: Are w- we right in the middle of 2 of Corinthians chapter 3, so I want to do a little bit of review and stuff to catch us up. Uh, also, I want to read some from Exodus 34, chapter 34, to give us some context as well for what Paul is going to be talking about. So I want to start uh, with where we left off last was we had gotten through chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So I want to just read 1 through 6 again uh, to kind of get us up to speed with what paul is saying and then we'll get started on that uh, so paul writes beginning of chapter three are we beginning to commend ourselves again so uh, just just like i said a lot of review uh, paul paul's favorite churches i would argue would be philippi and, and ephesus but corinth even though he's deeply involved with corinth he helped plant corinth quite a difficult relationship between the Apostle Paul and Corinth. He's struggling to get them to understand uh, that the gospel is everything in Corinth. They keep trying to bring in all of this uh, temple stuff, pagan stuff, idol worship, all that stuff. And at the same time, a lot of the people in Corinth in the Corinthian church are upset with Paul for trying to tell them so much about what they need to be doing what they're doing wrong, the false teaching, all of that stuff. And so he's constantly having to defend himself, proclaim the gospel, but at the same time not shame the Corinthians in such a way that they don't believe that they're a part of the kingdom of God. He keeps reminding them, even though he's correcting them all the time, he keeps reminding them that they are a part of the kingdom of God, they are in Christ, all of that. So there's just a ton of tension, a lot of things happening. And so he says here, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Because they've been he and his friends have been luke and timothy and all them have been acu- silas have been accused of constantly putting themselves up and exalting themselves to the corinthians which they have not but the corinthians have interpreted it that way so he's just trying to calm them down again he says you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all so he's saying the fact that there's a church in corinth is our commendation is our recommendation and that's enough that should be enough and that was and Paul would argue that wasn't even us that did it it was the movement of the Holy Spirit that did it so it's not even necessarily that we're being commended to you it's that God is being uh, commended to you Uh, so verse three and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not in ink But with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So you can see there he begins to introduce uh, the idea of the Ten Commandments and the tablets and all of that, which we're going to get into much more deeply in the rest of chapter uh, three when we get to uh, verse seven. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming From us. But. Our sufficiency is from God. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the spirit gives life. So again he's saying this is all about God. And what he's done in, in Corinth. Not us. But you still have to be obedient to the gospel. So he's trying to make that case. So now verses 7 through 11. Are a reference to Exodus 34, 29 through 32, and, and verses 12 through 18, which takes us through the rest of chapter 3, are a reference to Exodus 32, 34, uh, 33 through 35. So, what I want to do is just read that entire passage from Exodus as our background for what happens next. So, this is Moses going up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And Paul is trying to. Uh, is going to try to explain how the gospel is better than the law. It's better than the Ten Commandments. Not that the law is bad. (laughs) The law is good. It's just the gospel is better. So so, uh, in, in Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So his face is all lit up because he's reflecting the gl- glory of God, being in God's presence, getting the Ten Commandments. Aaron, Moses' brother, and, and the chief of the priests at the time, and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all of the leaders of the congregation returned to him, And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. His face was so bright because of the reflection of the glory of God. Verse 34, when uh, Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he, what, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, admittedly, what we're about to get into may seem a bit technical, and I hope that I can uh, you know, sort of boil it down to what the essentials are. So let's read now. Chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, verses 7 through 11, and try to explain that. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Now, right out of the gate, you you realize he's calling uh, the Ten Commandments the ministry of death. Does that not sound a little bit negative? That sounds a little bit negative. It sounds like he's being really, he really has a problem with the law, You'll see that he doesn't necessarily have a problem with the law. He's just trying to get uh, the people in Corinth to see how much better the gospel is. So he says, now, if the ministry of death carved in in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit, the gospel, have even more glory? That's a rhetorical question. They're not supposed to answer it. The answer is obviously yes. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So Paul says that the ministry of the Spirit, the gospel, the cross and resurrection of Christ is more glorious than the ministry that brought death. The, the, the Ten Commandments. Okay, And we're going to get into why he would call it the ministry of death. He says the ministry of righteousness, the gospel, is more splendid than the ministry that condemns. Again, the Ten Commandments. And the ministry which lasts or is eternal, is permanent, is more splendid than the ministry that is fading away. Again, it's the Ten Commandments. In in light of the fact that Jesus has fulfilled the law and is raised from the dead, the law is fading away in terms of its importance and its uh, ability to do what it was supposed to do for God's people. So what does all this mean? The Mosaic law is the old covenant. It's the ministry that brought death, the ministry that condemns. It's the ministry which is fading away. Why? Because what the law does is it points out sin. It points us to the fact that we are not righteous. We're not holy. We're not, quote, good enough. Okay? It points that out. Now, through the sacrificial system, we can, quote, get right with God, but it's temporary. The minute you leave the temple after making a sacrifice and you sin, boom, you're back in trouble again. You got to get ready to make another sacrifice. That's why there's constant sacrifices. And that actually was turned into a business that became corrupt which is why Jesus got a little bit upset at the, at the, at the, you know, in the temple that one time when he overturned the tables and everything. Okay? So it points out sin, but it can't eternally, permanently get us right with God. That's the problem with the law. It does its job. It holds up a mirror to us and helps us to understand that we're flawed and that we're sinful. We have an issue. We need God to intervene in our life. Okay? So is Paul saying the law is bad? No, quite the contrary. He's simply saying that the new covenant of the gospel of grace as applied by the Holy Spirit, notice the emphasis on the spirit in this, okay? He's saying that is superior to the law. He says the law was glorious and it was awesome, but it was deficient as compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law brought about death and condemnation because it could not save. In fact, uh, Paul writes in Romans, you know, he says, in the law, there is sin. He says, you read the law, and two things happen. First of all, you realize that you're a sinner. And second of all, have you ever noticed how if somebody tells you not to do something, it sort of inflames you and makes you want to do it in some respect, you know? Uh, Just think about the Garden of Eden. A lot of people have this idea in their mind that the Garden of Eden was like an acre, and it was maybe 12 trees, and so that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil was always right in front of them. The reality is, is that the Garden of Eden was hundreds of thousands of acres. It was either in the area of ancient Babylon, which is current, uh, current day ba- uh, Baghdad, or it was in the a- area of Nineveh, which was part of Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria. It was, we don't know exactly where it was geographically. In, in the book of Genesis, chapter two, It mentions how there's a confluence of four rivers. We know two of those rivers. We don't know where the other two rivers are. So they're saying it's either down here near ancient Babylon or it's near ancient Nineveh. It's one of those two places. I think it's probably near Babylon. Uh, At any rate, it was huge. And so what we have to remember is that that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's described in Genesis chapter 3 during the fall as that tree that's in the midst. In the ancient Hebrew, that literally means way over there out of your sight. So it's not like Adam and Eve were walking by the forbidden fruit every day. It wasn't until Satan drew their attention to it that they started going, hmm, maybe God's holding out on it. Have you ever thought about that? You you're, you start to con- That thought comes in your mind. You start to contemplate sin, and one of the first things you do is you begin to think, I wonder if God's holding out on me, and this isn't going to be that big of a deal to him he Okay, and, and that's how we start moving toward it. So Paul says, in the law there is sin. It points out that we're sinners. It also sort of inflames that natural desire for us to sin. That's one of the problems uh, with the law. And so the law merely exposes our sin and inflames our sin and the death that we live with. But the point is to make sure that we're pointed toward God. But the law can't save us. Therefore, in light of the coming of Jesus and his life-giving grace, resurrection, and salvation, the law is actually fading away. It's not that it isn't important. It's just fading away. Jesus never said that he came to abolish the law. He says that in the Gospels. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Okay. So Jesus is superior to the law, which is still awesome. It's still of God. And it did its job in the Old Covenant temporarily so it's, it's okay, it's just that Jesus is superior to it. And so Paul is saying if the new covenant is this good, it's superior to Moses, then there should never be a reason for the Corinthians or anyone who claims Christ to abuse the grace and the life that we receive, either by these two things that Paul keeps pointing out in Corinth. Either it's licentiousness, you've, you've, uh, you have a misunderstanding of grace. You've heard of you know, uh, licentious. It's, um, well, I'm, I'm under grace, so I can do whatever I want. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can sin all I want because I'm under grace. You know, I'm, I'm already forgiven, so why not just go out and, and have you? Okay, that's a misunderstanding of grace. The grace inspires us to live in obedience to Christ. That's not legalism, that's a response to the love and grace that He's bestowed on us. Okay? So that's one of the problems that's happening in Corinth. Some of them are running around going, I'm under grace. I can do whatever I want. I can sleep with your wife if I want to. I'm under grace. OK. Now, somebody might have somebody else might have something to say about that. But you get the idea. The other problem, though, is the false teaching that the Corinthians were bringing into the church, too. So he's trying, again, to get at them with this what, what we call sin license and false teaching. So then Paul goes on in verses 12 through 18 to teach about the new covenant through those last couple of verses in that Exodus uh, passage that I uh, that I just read, using the veiling and unveiling of Moses' face because of God's glory and uh, his illustration. So now let's read 12 through 18. So Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not ga- gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but... Their minds were hardened. The Israelites' minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. So he's now using this veil as a metaphor for the covering of their hearts so that they don't see the gospel. Because it's only through Christ that it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, there's a lot there, so we're going to unpack all of that. Okay, So verse 12, to me, just seems to be an obvious conclusion. Verse 12 says... Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We become bold because we have this hope. Uh, Given what Paul is teaching here, that the law, though good, brings death because it exposes sin and cannot necessarily save, though it should point us to God, and that by being the only one to fulfill the law and then go to the cross as payment for our utter, utter inability to keep the law, we have this hope in Christ that will make us bold. And let me remind you again, some of you have heard me talk about this, I'll remind you again, that biblical hope is way, way, way different than earthly hope. We all have hopes, right? Hopes and dreams. Okay, let's just talk about our hope. We all have hopes, right? Right? I, I, y- y- as you all know, I really hope that the Blackhawks somehow come back and start winning Stanley Cups again. Okay? So we have... The marketplace, we have, I, I hope I get promoted. How many of you want to get, well, I want to ask that. Maybe some of you are mad at work. Anyway, I hope I get promoted, okay? I, I hope the Suns win a championship. By the way, that hope is never going to be fulfilled. <laughs> if you understand the curse of the coin flip, it'll never, anyway. There are still people who are holding out, okay? I hope the Suns win the championship. I hope I get the loan, okay? I hope I get a good grade on the exam. I hope she will go out with me. I hope she will make me exclusive to her. I hope she says yes when I propose. I hope the honeymoon is fun. I hope living with her in marriage is bliss. I hope she'll agree to the divorce. (laughs) Okay, The whole progression of hopes that we live with, Okay, Those are all earthly hopes. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee of any earthly hope ever coming true. But the hope we have in Christ is totally guaranteed. And if you go back to just 1 Corinthians 15, that's Paul, all of 15, talking about the resurrection, explaining that's why we have hope. Jesus defeated death. That's why we have hope. That's a guarantee. That's a seal of our promise from God. And God is not only a promise maker, but he's a promise keeper. That Jesus was raised from the dead, seals the deal, guarantees the promise that we have that we are saved and going to spend eternity in a place called the New Jerusalem. Heaven, some people call it heaven, but it's the New Jerusalem. And that should make us bold. But then the next question is, bold to do what? Bold, bold enough to simply admit, especially in a culture like ours that is somewhat hostile to faith, which, is, by the way, is nothing new. People have been hostile to the faith for thousands of years, Okay but bold enough to admit that we believe in Jesus and stand by his word. Bold enough to live without fear and in the security of his sufficiency. Bold enough to face death with confidence. I've told you many times before, I'm not afraid to die, but I'm not excited about the method by which I might die. Okay, I'm hoping I go to sleep and then not wake up sometime. That would be the way I I, I think so, because I've been around enough deathbeds to know how, I especially, well, uh, you know, it can be really <laughs> painful and difficult. Uh, bold enough to live with disappointment, challenge, and tribulation, even sometimes suffering, while also looking at the same time for God's purpose in those things. And bold enough to live with our thorns. You know, Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh. We all have thorns, so bold <coughs> enough to live with our thorns and to count on God's sufficiency to, to empower us. But then you get, okay, so what's all this veil stuff? So Paul says that this boldness that we have is not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that God's people might not gaze at what was being brought to an end. Again, the old covenant was going to be brought to an end, and their minds were hardened, and to this day they're still hardened when they read the law. That's what he's saying in verses 13 and 14. And what's happening here is that Paul is interpreting the veil situation not only as the Israelites not being able to look upon the extreme brightness, but also as a veil conceding the fading glory and nature of the law as compared to the coming Messiah who is going to fulfill the law and who has fulfilled the law and save his people. He also, in just a couple more verses, then he begins to refer to the veil as actually uh, the veil of the God of this world also covering our eyes and our hearts so that we can't see the gospel as well. Okay? And so the people harden their minds against this because they are sold on the law as a way of life, even it is as it is fading and unable to do what Jesus uh, does for us. And by the way, I would argue here that it's not only the Mosaic Law that they're counting on, but it's also the, our own laws that we come up with. Maybe we have no idea what, especially in our culture today, have you ever asked anybody to name the Ten Commandments? I, I'm not talking about anybody off the, I'm talking about somebody in church, somebody who claims Christ, okay? Have you ever asked them to name the Ten Commandments, how hard it is for them to do that? Um, I, you know, I teach at GCU. I actually ask that question in my class, I teach in the College of Theology at GCU. So this is not business class or something. So these are, <laughs> these are like seminary students. And I said, all right, what are the 10 commandments? And, and uh, believe it or not, in 30 seconds, we had all 10. I was really impressed. OK, I bet if I do that at Paradise Valley, my class at Paradise Valley Community College, they wouldn't be able to do that. But at any rate, I was really impressed. But um, people who don't uh, know the law, the Moses, Mosaic law, everybody lives by some sort of a law, right? Everybody's got a, an idea of their morality, right? And and so what's interesting to me is they come up with their moral code, their own personal moral code, and then when they see that they can't even live up to the moral code that they establish for themselves, they can't even live up to that. Then they adjust the moral code rather than their behavior. Okay, And so it's even this law that Paul is talking about, the, the law of our own personal moral codes that we can't live up to. And he says, even to this day, that's a reference to how the Jews who attend synagogue when the law is read have a metaphorical veil over their face and heart and mind that does not allow them to see that the law is in fact pointing them to the Messiah, the one who has already come. So even as they are loyal to the law, they are remaining in their sin. So when a person comes to Christ, the veil is lifted and they see the true eternal glory of the Lord in and through his son and our Savior Jesus. So Paul uses... This teaching in verses 7 through 18 to refute one thing and to set up another one, which we get to in chapter 4. We're going to do the kind of the beginning of chapter 4 um, for the rest of the evening, and then we'll finish 4 and get into 5 next week. So here's the refutation. What he's getting ready to do in chapter 4. Paul is refuting those in the Church of Corinth of Jewish ancestry, of which there are many. Not all of them are Gentiles or Greeks, of Jewish ancestry who are continuing to count on the law as something that has salvific properties to it, and therefore teach a false gospel by saying, Yeah, you need to come to Jesus, but you also must keep the law to be saved. The combination of the two. And this is nothing new. This is nothing new, it's not uncommon. In fact, when Paul wrote to, uh, to the Galatians, to the church in Galatia, which some would argue is the first letter that Paul wrote, so maybe five years before uh, writing to the church at Corinth, the other one is 1 uh, Thessalonians. It's one of those two. But anyway, an earlier letter that he wrote to uh, the church in Galatia, uh, he's, this is one of the reasons that he wrote to them, uh, because there were too many people in the church at Galatia who were preaching a false gospel. Come to Jesus, but you also must keep the law. Come to Jesus, you must get also, also get circumcised. Come to Jesus, you must also offer sacrifices. Come to Jesus, you must also keep the Mosaic Law. And Paul's saying, no, that's a false gospel. Jesus plus anything is a false gospel. The reason we're going to do works, the reason that we are obedient, is because we're saved, not in order to get saved. It's a response to our salvation. Okay. So even today, there are sects of Christianity where it's taught that Jesus is great and wonderful and awesome, but it's not enough to be saved. You got to keep the uh, the, law, the law. Even to the point where there's still some sacrificial systems in some outlier Christian churches where they, they act. So imagine if one Sunday y'all are here for church and I brought in a goat. Wouldn't that be kind of weird? Okay. Uh, we need to do this once a year to kind of help Jesus. You know that 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 doesn't work. Um, last what <laughs> yeah that would be Irish last Sunday uh, you, you maybe have a, a, a shank first before you go right though <laughs> yeah. right. Um, and then during first Corinthians of course we talked about there's, there's there are also other uh, Christian uh, sects that say that you're not saved until you've had the second blessing as well Okay, which is uh, the second blessing is usually interpreted as being able to speak in tongues. Okay, you, you're almost there. You got Jesus, but now you got to have the second blessing, and then you're really saved. Okay, so remember, uh, again, Jesus plus anything is a false gospel. Okay, So that's the refutation that Paul is getting ready for. And then the setup is in chapter 4, which begins this powerful and practical statement by with this powerful and practical statement by Paul. He says, therefore, having this ministry of the new covenant of grace, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Verses four, chapter four, verses one through six. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We do not give up. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, We refuse to practice cunning, or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, so here he is, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so verse 1 we don't lose heart we don't grow weary our work. We are constantly energized by the good news of Jesus, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and the hope of the resurrection. All of that keeps us going. Okay, uh, The idea of losing heart is essentially giving up all hope. That's how one commentator describes it, just giving up all hope. Um, th- how has anybody in here read uh, Viktor Frankl, who is a psychiatrist uh, in the first half of the 20th century, uh, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Has anybody read that book, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning? It's a great book. It's considered a classic. So Frankl was um, uh, a German Jew who was a psychiatrist and he was put into a concentration camp. And so if I understand the statistics correctly, one out of every 10 persons who was put in a concentration camp in Germany during World War II, one out of 10 survived. So 90% of them were, were killed in some way, or they just died. So Frankel, as a psychiatrist, decides that while he's in there, if he's going to survive, um, he ought to be taking notes where he can so that he could maybe write a book afterwards. And so this is the book that he wrote after was Man's Search for Meaning. Okay, And here's his uh, his conclusion, I wouldn't even want to say it's, it's, it's his thesis. I don't know that he had a thesis. It's just that he came, after observing everything that went on in this, in this one concentration camp, he came to this this conclusion. And his conclusion was, a person who has no hope will die. That hope is just about as important for somebody to live as air and water and food that hope is sustaining for us. The hope that there's something that's going to happen that will save us, that'll be good. Hope is critical to our ability to survive. And and he said that the most profound way that he understood this and learned this was, um, if you can imagine what those those concentration camps were like, they were obviously awful, um, but uh, the German soldiers would smoke cigarettes and then they would put out the cigarette when they were done with it. And then there would be this sort of quiet but mad scramble to grab the butt of the cigarette because none of the prisoners ever got cigarettes. And so cigarettes were almost like gold there. And so they would, they would hoard these cigarette butts. Like if you had eight or 10 cigarette butts, which you might be able to get one drag, one puff off of, a, uh, off of these little cigarette butts, one little of tobacco, but that's the only pleasure really that they had. So if you had eight or 10 of these and you were saving them, you were considered rich in the, in the concentration camp. If you had like eight or 10 of these little cigarette butts and you would never smoke a bunch of them. You would smoke one and then you'd save the others and you'd savor it. Okay. He said he saw this over, he and others saw this over and over and over again somebody would open up whatever their little tissue or whatever they were keeping their butts in at night before they go to bed, and they'd just smoke them all. And then they'd go to sleep, and he said, probably not going to wake up in the morning because they, that was a sign, an indication that they had given up hope. I'm going to smoke my entire inventory of cigarette butts because I'm done with this. And they wouldn't wake up in the morning. It was fascinating to read about. And so his conclusion his observation is that if you don't have hope you're it's going to it's going to be really difficult to sustain life. That's how important hope is. So Paul says we don't lose heart even in the midst of suffering, tribulation, challenges, all of these problems. And 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 Paul understood all of the tribulation and challenges. When we get to 2nd uh, Corinthians 9 it's 10 2nd Corinthians 10 we're going to see him list his resume of oppression and tribulation and it's pretty long and I doubt that uh, I, I bet we could combine all of the oppression and tribulation in this room and it wouldn't even come close to what Paul faced in his little uh, his little resume of tribulation so verse 2 he says we don't engage in disgraceful and underhanded ways. They don't practice them. So, what are those? In his words, they do not practice cunning, nor do they tamper with God's word. So, we'll talk about both. So, first of all, cunning. Another way to translate that word, cunning, would be trickery. So, what Paul is saying is that he and his crew, he and his buddies, he and his evangelists are not dependent on persuasive techniques or deception or rhetorical craftiness. In their evangelism or, or, or teaching, they preach and teach Christ and they preach and teach Christ crucified. That's it. Now, that's an echo of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where he says, we never came to you with um, uh, all of these persuasive techniques. We didn't come to you dazzling you with rhetoric. We just came and said, here's Jesus. He was crucified and he's raised. That's what we came to you. Um, And it's sad the number of Christian churches in our world now that use these emotive techniques and methods in order to sway people. Uh, Some of you remember Cody Kimmel. Okay, he used to talk about this all the time. He said he said, oh, yeah, you know, he studied music theory and all that. So he said, oh, yeah, we could we could figure out how to do songs that raise and lower people's emotions and put them on that emotional uh, ride. And we can do that if we want. But that's just manipulation. That's why we're very concerned about the theology in the songs and not necessarily the undulation of the songs, okay? Uh, So, but then there's the whole light thing. People use lights. Anybody been to a church with smoke machines? Because you know that's something now, too, smoke machines. Colored smoke machines. It's like everybody's vaping, but not really. (laughs) uh, Um, Theologically inept songs. uh, Narratives that are not tied to biblical theology, Okay. Um, There's no dependence on the spirit of God to do the work on whom he chooses when you when you have to start doing that. So you're not depending on the spirit of God anymore. You're just depending on your own cleverness, your own manipulation. And so our our call is to be faithful, obedient and willing to trudge in the process. (laughs) Willingness to trudge. You know, uh, Tom, uh, our founding pastor, used to call it. uh, We should learn how to revel in the glory of the grind. OK, that, you know, life, most of life really is lived in the mundane and in, in the routine. And, and we need to learn how to be able to glory in, in that. So remember, God is the one who produces. Even Paul said this in First Corinthians chapter three. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God that caused the growth. So there's too much emphasis uh, in church world on having um, you know, large congregations by any means possible and not enough on faithfully serving those God has given to the church no matter what the size of the church is. And then he says we don't tamper with God's word either. So obviously, again, Paul is warning about false teachers there. A lot of false teachers. But there's false teachers today too. There always will be, always has been. Okay. So obviously... That's what he's warning them about with tampering with God's word. Also, those who seemingly use God's word but pervert, manipulate, and malign it to say whatever they want it to say, which uh, I'm glad never happens today. Um, You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Uh, And the word translated tamper, so he doesn't tamper with God's word. Uh, But literally the word in Greek means to adulterate or falsify adulterate or falsify so Paul renounces as we should as well both of these literally as shameful practices which is actually a better translation than disgraceful of that Greek word they're shameful practices he says we're not engaging in that and anybody who does is a problem it's to anyone's shame that they would rely on their own cunning and false teaching in order to build a church or make a living Uh, And then verse 3, back to Moses' veil. Wow. (laughs) This statement causes a lot of grief. Paul is saying that without the Spirit opening our minds and hearts to the gospel, Jesus remains veiled to those who refuse to acknowledge him. And I know this is really difficult. This is really challenging. So the, the, the question would be, are you saying I cannot look at what the Bible says and decide for myself without an assist from the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus. Is that what you're saying? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and that's not really me saying it. That's what the Bible says. Okay? It's, what, it's how Scripture handles this topic all the time. The Spirit's got to be involved. Okay? Our hearts are veiled, and, and they're veiled by our own personal uh, proclivities, our sin, our law, our moral code, our virtue paradigm, whatever it is. And it's not until God reveals our sin to us and our utter helplessness to save ourselves that we can then come to Jesus. And that is a work of the Spirit in our hearts and our minds. So one example of this is just in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says this. No one... Are there any exceptions there? Okay, no one... Can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, no one can. Okay? Literally, no one has the power. The verb there is the verb dinatai. We get the English word dynamite from it power. No one has the power to come to me. No one is able to come to me. No one has the ability to make this decision of their own will because their will is encumbered by sin. Okay? I believe, and by the way, I, Martin Luther taught this too in his book, um, The Lutheran Erasmus Debate. Um, we have a will have agency, but we don't have free will. Our will is encumbered by sin, so it's not free. But we do have agency. We make decisions all day long. But it's not free of sin to be able to make those decisions. That's a problem. And that's what Jesus is saying here. No one has the power to be able to do that unless God the Father, God the Spirit is involved in that. So then the word draws. No one can, no one has the power to come to me unless the father draws him. There's a, that verb there. It's the verb helkisi. Literally, the word means to drag or struggle against. To, do, to drag. Okay? So, in, in uh, first century uh, Greek culture, Greek-speaking culture, that word helkisi described what you would do when you'd go to a well to get water with a bucket. They would helkisi the water out of it. The, so they drop the bucket in to the water and pull it out. Okay? So, just imagine now, okay? You can't stand at the edge of a well and coax the water up to you, right? Doesn't work, right? Has anybody ever stood at the edge of a well and said, "Come on. Come on, you know, no, you have to go get the water. That's what that word draw means. That word is also used in relationship to going and finding treasure and digging it out of something. So it's actually going and taking and pulling and pulling it out. Okay? So God needs to work in the hearts and the minds of the hearer of his good news, his word, in order to be able to act on it. And I will tell you, that was true for me too. I mean, I, I, I can say that, that it, I, I didn't understand it at the time, and it took me a long time to come around to that, and it was only through reading scripture that I was able to come around to it. But I began to understand that wasn't me who was sitting at North Phoenix Baptist Church, whatever it was, 36 years ago, 36 years ago, going, hmm, I'm smart enough to make this decision. It's all me. That wasn't me. That was God's spirit, working on my heart, changing my heart, changing my mind, revealing to me my own utter hopelessness and helplessness apart from him. That's what God was doing in me during that time. And then verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded them to keep them from seeing the light of Jesus. So the God of this world, what is Paul referring to? Well, all three of these things, Satan, False gods. Anybody have false gods? So when I do premarital, one of the only homework other than making people read uh, Keller's book on marriage, the meaning of marriage. How many of you have read the meaning of marriage? It's fantastic. Read hundreds of books on marriage. That's got to be that's the one I would recommend. Okay. Close second would be love and respect, Emerson Egricks, But th- that book by Keller is awesome. Um, but. Uh, when I do premarital, the only other homework I give premarital couples is to uh, say, uh, there's, a, there's a book that, um, called The Exemplary Husband that was written by Stuart Scott, and that's not the late, great sportscaster from ESPN. This is Stuart Scott, the biblical scholar, two completely different people. Okay. Uh, he wrote a book called The Exemplary Husband. It's 419 pages be- long it, because husbands need a lot of help to be exemplary. And it's a really thick book, and, and it's really good, but really, really thick. I've been through it uh, with a couple of guys, um, and, it, and it takes us a while to get through it. At any rate, um, in the midst of that book, there's like a three-page section on false gods where he describes what a false god gives you some examples and gives you some other practical uh, stuff about false gods and talks about how false gods in the midst of marriage are, are a problem. And so the only other homework I give premarital couples is to give them these three pages out of this book, The Exemplary Husband, and then say, separately, don't talk to each other about this. I want you to go and do self-assessment. I want you to pray about this, and I want you to come up with what are your three or four idols or false gods in your life, or potential idols or false gods in your life. Because we need to talk about that. The two of you getting together, you need to know what each other's proclivities are when it comes to idol worship. So the reason I do that is because I think churches like Redemption do a good job of talking about idolatry Paul talks a lot about idolatry God talks a lot about idolatry in the Old Testament too it's a problem we do a good job talking about idolatry because idolatry gets in the way of our relationship with God we don't talk that much about how much idolatry gets in the way of our relationship with others especially the most important relationship in our lives and marriage our idols will get in the way of our relationship with our spouse as well. And I want spouses to go into their marriage with their eyes open about what those potential idols are, and those idols change, of course, over time. But and I give them examples too. I say, okay, so I, I guess my three m- comfort. Anybody have comfort? Is uh, that's that's a big one for me. You violate my idol of comfort. I mean, I, I've had to learn for decades how to respond better to that. Okay, especially when Jackie. Um, I fully admit that Jackie can become an idol to me. I mean, I really think a lot of her, and I love her, and I, and she's, she's incre- I think she's terrific. I think she's incredible. But when I, when I exalt her like a false god, then, then I'm expecting her to be able to do things that she was never created by God to be able to do for me. So it's not only unfair to her, and, uh, it's not only frustrating to me, but it's unfair to her. Okay, here's one for you. Here's a, my third, people-pleasing. I had to deal with that for a long, long time. anybody here, anybody want to admit to people pleasing being okay? Or here you go. Here's another the affirmation of others. That one comes up a lot. Okay. So um, there's Satan, the god of this world. There's our own false gods. Those are also a god of this world. And then of course our own corrupt will. This idea of meism. Okay. These gods will keep unbelievers from seeing Jesus for who he is, which is God. And then verse 5, Paul leads, uh, verse 5 leads Paul to then point out and insist that because removing the veil is assisted by God, there is no reason for Paul or his cohorts to preach and proclaim as his servants anything other than Christ because that's the only thing that will work, not their cleverness, not their rhetorical acumen. The only thing that will remove that veil is an assist from God. So why bother trying to be clever? I can't imagine um, every week. Okay, i just tell you, I think it's hard work for a preacher every week to come up with how they're going to be clever this week. I think it's a much easier job to just open the scriptures and study them and then pro- and proclaim the gospel. to the con- I think that's a lot easier. So yeah, my job is really easy. I work half a day a week, you know? Romans ten seventeen: faith comes by hearing, and that through the word of God. That's where faith comes from. And then verse 6, the same God who commanded the light in creation also commands that our hearts and minds be open to the truth and reality of who Jesus is. And to know Jesus also means that you know his glory as well that sets us all up for the next 12 verses which we will tackle next week and then get into chapter 5 because we're done and I'm a minute over sorry let me pray and we will be on our way big Sunday this coming Sunday I hope you all can make it anyway uh, Lord God thank you for your word and its truth and I pray that um, as we read and study your word that we would be encouraged that we would be filled with hope that we would not lose heart and that we would be bold about our faith appropriately bold so help us to be able to do that by the power of your spirit we pray that in jesus name amen good to see you all